Chapter Four, Part Two of the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume Ten, Ingersoll's Closing Address to the Jury in the Second Star Root Trial, Part Two of Twenty Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by William Jones. Part Two, Closing Address to the Jury in the Second Star Root Trial. I also have another case to which I will call the attention of the court: United States versus Chaffee, eighteen Wallace five sixteen. I have not the book here, but I can state what it is. My recollection of the case is this: that an action was brought against some distillers. That by law distillers have to keep certain books in which certain entries by law have to be made. Notice was served upon the defendants to produce those books. They refused to do so. And the question was whether any presumption arose against the defendants on account of that refusal. The court, I agree with you entirely that far in your law that the mere fact of the failure to produce books or papers has no effect at all against the party declining to produce them. But it is a different question altogether after secondary evidence has been given in consequence of such refusal to supply the place of the primary evidence. If the books and papers have an existence, and the party who has received the notice has refused to produce them, and the other party has given secondary evidence of the contents of such books and papers, that secondary evidence will have to stand, under those circumstances, as the proof in the case. Mr. Ingersoll, that is not the point. Of course that will stand for what it is worth. I was arguing this point. Can the jury hatch and putty and plaster the secondary evidence with a presumption born of the failure to produce the books and papers? The court. What I mean is just this. If you should fail to produce the primary evidence, and then the secondary evidence of the contents is not contradicted, Mr. Ingersoll interposing, it may not be contradicted because it happens to be inherently improbable. Mr. Merrick. The government claims the law to be as your honor has intimated, and we have formulated it in one of our prayers. But that abstract proposition is hardly applicable in the present case, for the government claims the application of another and plainer proposition, that wherever a defendant himself takes the stand and has in his possession a certain paper which, when called upon on cross-examination to produce, he refuses, then a presumption unquestionably arises of such potency that it is difficult to resist. Mr. Ingersoll, there is no difference, so far as the law is concerned, whether the defendant, as a defendant, fails to produce the books and papers, or whether in his capacity as witness he fails to produce the books and papers. The law, it seems to me, is exactly the same. Now in this case of the United States versus Chaffee et al., 18 Wall 544, Justice Field denounces that you should presume against the party because he fails to produce books and papers known to be in his possession. And why? 
I suppose a party cannot be presumed out of his liberty, he cannot be presumed into the penitentiary, and you cannot make a prison out of a presumption any more than you can make out a gibbet out of a suspicion. And again, the court instructed the jury that the law presumed that the defendants kept their accounts usual and necessary for the correct understanding of their large business and an accurate accounting between the partners and that the books are in existence and accessible to the defendants unless the contrary were shown that same thing has been claimed here the court no ingersoll we have heard it very often that this was a large business the court you have not heard anything of that kind from the court mr ingersoll i am not saying that i said claimed if i had referred to your honor i should have said decided here is another instruction of the court if you believe the books were kept which contained the facts necessary to show the real amount of whiskey in the hands of the defendants in october eighteen sixty five and the amount which they had sold during the next ten months or that the defendants or either of them could by their own oath resolve all doubts on this point if you believe this then the circumstances of this case seem to come fully within the most necessary and beneficent rule he applied the word beneficent to a rule that put a man in a penitentiary on a presumption the court he was conservative mr ingersoll he ought to read some work on the use and abuse of words now judge field says further the purport of all this was to tell the jury that although the defendants must be proved guilty beyond a reasonable doubt yet if the government had made out a prima facie evidence against them not one free from all doubt but one which disclosed circumstances requiring explanation and the defendants did not explain the perplexing question of their guilt need not disturb the minds of the jurors that is this case exactly that is the exact claim of colonel bliss in this case gentlemen you have only to take into consideration he says what we offered to prove and what the court would not allow us and what the defendants failed to prove why didn't they call bosler now gentlemen we claim the law to be this that while notice is given to us to produce books and papers and we fail to do it the only legal consequence is that the government may then prove the contents of such books and papers and that their proof of the contents must be passed upon by you the next thing to which i call your attention is the crime laid at our door that we exercise the right of petition it is regarded as a very suspicious circumstance that petitions were circulated signed and then sent to the office of the second assistant postmaster general why did these people petition let me tell you if you will look in every contract in this case you will find certain provisions relative to carrying the mail among others you will find this that no contractor has any right to carry any newspaper or any letter faster than the scheduled time that he has no right to carry any commercial news or to carry any man who has any commercial news about his person faster than the scheduled time no mail can be carried by anybody except the united states and if a community wants more mail 
it has no right to establish and express that will carry the mail faster because the united states has the monopoly now if you want more mail what are you to do you cannot start one yourself the government will not allow it what have you to do you have to petition the government to carry the mail faster or to carry it more frequently and the reason you have to ask the government to do this is because the government will not permit you to do it consequently you have only one resort what is that petition and in this very case i believe his honor used this language every man carrying the mail has the right to take care of his business he has the right to get up petitions he has the right to call the attention of the people to what he supposes to be their needs in that regard he has the right to do it and the fact that he does it is not the slightest evidence that he conspired with any human being now if the man carrying the mail has the right to call the attention of the people to their needs have not the people the right to do all that themselves if the man carrying the mail has a right to get up a petition surely the people have the right and if the people have the right surely the man has the right that is the only way we can find out in this country what the people want that is to hear from them they have the right to tell what they want but these gentlemen say anybody will sign a petition well if that is true there is no great necessity for forging one very few people will steal what they can get for the asking if a bank or a man offers you all the money you want you would hardly go and forge a check to get it i'll come to that in a few moments now gentlemen according to this evidence you have got to determine as i said in the outset was there a conspiracy the second question you have to determine is when in every crime in the world you have got to prove the four w's who when what where who conspired when what about and where now i want to ask you a few questions and i want you to keep this evidence in mind was there a conspiracy when dorsey received the letter from peck or minor had the egg of this crime then been laid had it been hatched at that time is there any evidence of it the object then was to make some bids it is not necessary to conspire to make bids you cannot conspire to make fraudulent bids unless you enter into an agreement that the lowest bid is not accepted or agree upon some machinery by which the lowest bid is not received or put in a bid with fraudulent and worthless security will the government say that there was a conspiracy at the time peck or minor wrote to s w dorsey what evidence have you that there was none what evidence have you that there was not the evidence of minor and the evidence of s w dorsey what else boone had not been seen at that time john w dorsey was not here peck was not here peck or minor had written the letter was there any conspiracy then is there any evidence of it is there enough to make a respectable suspicion even in the mind of jealousy does it amount even to a trifle light as air was it when dorsey sent for boone boone says no he ought to know s w dorsey says no john w dorsey was not here minor had not arrived 
the only suspicious thing up to that point is that dorsey lived in his house that he received this letter in his house and that boone had visited him in his house that is all now if there is a particle of evidence i want the attorney for the government who closes this case to point it out and to be fair was it when miner got here in december eighteen seventy seven miner says no boone says no stephen w dorsey says no john w dorsey was not yet here all the direct evidence says no all the indirect evidence says nothing now let us keep our old text in view i want to ask you if there is a thing in all the evidence not consistent with innocence was it not consistent with innocence that peck and minor and john w dorsey should agree to bid was it not consistent with innocence that john w dorsey met peck at oberlin and that he met minor in sandusky was not that consistent with innocence was it not consistent with innocence for peck to write s w dorsey a letter was it not consistent with innocence for dorsey to open it and read it and then send for boone and give it to him boone in the meantime proceeded to get information so that they could bid intelligently was that consistent with innocence perfectly more than that it was inconsistent with guilt what next maybe this conspiracy was gotten up about the sixteenth of january when john w dorsey came here dorsey says no boone says no minor says no and s w dorsey says no that is the direct evidence where is the indirect evidence there is none ah but they say don't you remember those clendenning bonds yes is there anything in the indictment about them no was any contract granted upon those bonds or proposals no was the government ever defrauded out of a cent by them no is there any charge in this case relative to them no everybody says no john w dorsey entered into a partnership with a e boone after he came here is that consistent with innocence yes no doubt many of the jury have been in partnerships with people there is nothing wrong about that he also entered into partnership with minor and peck there were two firms john w dorsey and company which meant a e boone and john w dorsey and minor peck and company which meant minor peck and john w dorsey is there anything criminal in that no they had a right to bid they had a right to form an association a partnership there is nothing more suspicious in that than there would have been in evidence of their eating and sleeping now then was this conspiracy entered to on august seventh eighteen seventy eight when boone went out boone says no and with charming frankness he says if there had been a conspiracy he would have stayed he said quote, if i had even suspected one i never would have gone out if i had dreamt that they had a good thing i would have stayed in he swears that at the time there was not any minor swears to it and s w dorsey swears to it everybody swears to it except the counsel for the prosecution rodell swears to it that is the only suspicious thing about it now at that time 
August 7th, when Boone went out, S. W. Dorsey was not here, and John W. Dorsey was not here. Who was? Minor. What was the trouble? Brady told him. I want you to put on that service. If you don't, I will declare you a failing contractor. A little while before that, Miner had met Dorsey in St. Louis, and Dorsey had said, This is the last money I will furnish. No matter whether I conspired or not, I am through. This magnificent conspiracy, silver-plated and gold-lined, I give up. There are millions in it, but I want no more. I am through. So Mr. Miner, using his power of attorney from John W. Dorsey and Peck, took in Mr. Vale. I believe that Mr. Rodell swears that the reason they took in Vale was that they wanted a man close to Brady. According to the government, they had already conspired with Brady. They could not get much closer than that, could they? Miner was a co-conspirator, and yet they wanted somebody to introduce him to Brady. John W. Dorsey and S. W. Dorsey were in the same position. They were conspirators the bargain was all made signed sealed and delivered and yet they went around hunting somebody that was close to brady brady said i will declare you all failing contractors i can't help it though i have conspired with you i give up all my millions this service has got to be put on the only way to stop it is for you to seek for a man that is close to me you are not close enough now absurdity may go further than that but i doubt it you must recollect that that contract was signed as of the sixteenth of august you remember its terms at that time not a cent had been paid to s w dorsey his post-office drafts had been cut out by the subcontracts afterwards he had a quarrel with vale we will call it december eighteen seventy eight was the conspiracy flagrant then let us have some good judgment about this gentlemen you are to decide this question the same as you decide others except that you are to take into consideration the gravity of the consequences flowing from the verdict you must decide it with your faculties all about you with your intellectual eyes wide open without a bit of prejudice in your minds and without a bit of fear you must decide it like men you must judge men as you know them was there a conspiracy between these defendants in december eighteen seventy eight when s w dorsey came back here and found out the security for his money was gone and when he had the quarrel with mr vale is there the slightest scintilla of testimony to show that mr vale came into this business through any improper motive i challenge the proposition to point to one line of testimony that any reasonable man can believe, even tending to show that Mr. Vale was actuated by improper motive. I defy them to show a line tending to prove that John R. Minor was actuated by an improper motive when he asked Vale to assist him in this business. I defy them to show that Brady was actuated by an improper motive when he told them, you must put on that service or I will declare you all failing contractors was there a conspiracy then i ask you mr froman and i ask each of you was there a conspiracy at that time have the prosecution introduced one particle of testimony to show that there was in march was there a conspiracy will you call dividing 
a conspiracy will you call going apart coming together if you will then there must have been a conspiracy in march a conspiracy to do what a conspiracy to separate a conspiracy to have nothing in common from that day forward mr vale entered into a conspiracy then that he would have no more business relations with s w dorsey he swears that at this time nothing on earth would have tempted him to go on that is what they call being in a conspiring frame of mind not another step would he go in march they separated and each one went his way it was finally fixed up and finally settled in may john w dorsey was out with his ten thousand dollars and peck was out with his ten thousand dollars s w dorsey for the first time became the owner of thirty roots or something more and minor and vale of the balance i think ninety six according to that contract of august sixteen john w dorsey only had a third interest in the roots he had with boone and not another cent there was a division if there was a conspiracy of such magnitude why should boone go out of it why should john dorsey sell out for ten thousand dollars why should john w dorsey offer boone one-third of it why was mr a w moore offered one-quarter of it a gentleman who could be employed for one hundred and fifty dollars a month i ask you these questions gentlemen i ask you to answer them all in your own minds recollect on the sixteenth of august there was a conspiracy involving hundreds of thousands of dollars in that conspiracy was the second assistant postmaster-general they had the post office department by the throat they had the postmaster-general blindfolded yet miner went to vale and said now just furnish a little money to put on these roots and you may have forty per cent of this conspiracy he was giving him hundreds of thousands of dollars is that the way people talk that conspire together would not miner have gone to brady and said look here what is the use of acting like a fool what do you want me to give forty per cent of this thing to veil for i had better give twenty per cent more to you that would allow me to keep twenty per cent more too and then there will be one less to keep the secret he never thought of that i want you to think of these things gentlemen all of you and see how they will strike your mind what did they want of boone s w dorsey they say was the prime mover he hatched this conspiracy Minor his own brother peck and everybody else were simply his instruments his tools what did he want boone for he had a magnificent conspiracy from which millions were to come he told boone i will give you a third of it what for he told more i will give you one quarter seven twelfths gone already t j b thirty three and one third per cent that is about all then sixty-five per cent more to the subcontractors i want you to think about these things gentlemen if they had such a conspiracy what did they want of mr moore gentlemen was it natural for s w dorsey to get the money back that he had advanced or some security for it was that natural when a man seeks to have a debt secured is that a suspicious circumstance that is all he did he was out several thousand dollars he wanted to secure that debt and he took another debt of twenty thousand dollars upon him as a burden if this had been a conspiracy he could have furnished this money that he had to pay others to put the service on the route i leave it to each one of you if that action to secure that debt was not perfectly 
Natural. I will ask you another question. If he was the originator of the conspiracy, would he have taken 30% burdened with a debt of $20,000? The way to find out whether there is any sense in anything or not is to ask yourself questions. Put yourself in that place. You, the master of the situation, you, the author of the entire scheme, would you take one-third of what you yourself had produced and that one-third burdened with $20,000 worth of debt? and then make your debt out of the proceeds? I want every one of you to ask yourself the question, because you have got to decide this case with your brains and with your intelligence, not somebody else, but you, yourself. We want your verdict. We want your individual opinion, not somebody else's. There is the safety of the jury trial. We are to have the opinions of 12 men, and those opinions agreeing. Where 12 honest men agree, if they are also independent men, the rule is that the verdict is right. The opinion of an honest man is always valuable, and if he is only honest, and if it is his opinion, it is valuable. It is valuable if he does not go to some mental second-hand store and buy cheap opinions from someone else, or take cheap opinions. In this case, I ask the individual opinion of each one of you. I want each one of you to pass upon this evidence. I want each one of you to say whether, if Dorsey had been the author and finisher of this conspiracy, he would have taken 30%, burdened with that $20,000 of debt to others, and 15000 of debt to himself. If you can answer that question in the affirmative, you can do anything. After that, nothing can be impossible to you except a reasonable verdict. You cannot answer it that way. Why should he have cared so much about fifteen or $16,000 with a conspiracy worth hundreds of thousands of dollars? Why run the risk of making the whole conspiracy public? Why run the risk of his detection and its destruction? You cannot answer it. Perhaps the prosecution can answer it. I hope they will try. Mr. Kerr, on page 4493, makes a very important admission. After they, meaning the defendants, had these contracts... There was a combination, an agreement between all these people that they were to do certain things in order to get at the public treasury and get more money. What does this mean? This means that this conspiracy was entered into after the defendants had obtained the contracts, so that Mr. Kerr fixes the birth of this conspiracy after these contracts had been awarded to the defendants. That being so, all the bids, proposals, Clendenning letter, Haycock letter, proposals in blank, and bidders' names left out, fade away. The Chico letter I will come to after a while. I will not be afraid of it as were the counsel for the prosecution. I will not, like the Levite, pass on by the other side of the Chico letter. I will not treat it as if it were a leper, as if it had a contagious disease. When I get to it, I will speak about it. All these things, then, under admission, go for naught and have nothing to do with the case, and consequently nobody need argue with regard to them any more, although incidentally I may allude to them again. There is no doubt, recollect, after this admission. There is no clause in the indictment saying that we endeavored to defraud this government by bids, by proposals, by bonds, or by contracts. Not a word. That is all out. In my judgment it should never have been in the case at all. What is the next thing we did? It is alleged that the moment Dorsey got these contracts, 
he laid the foundation to defraud the government by a new form of subcontract. Let me answer that fully, and let that put an end to it from this time on. Until May 17, 1878, the Post Office Department did not recognize subcontractors. After these contracts came into possession of these defendants, Congress passed a law recognizing subcontractors. Consequently, the contracts of the subcontractors that were to be recognized by the government had to be somewhere near the same form as the contracts with the original contractors. The moment the contract of the subcontractor was to be recognized by the government, then it was necessary and proper to put a clause in that subcontract for expedition and a clause in that subcontract for increase of service. Why? So that the government should know, if the route was expedited, what percentage the subcontractor was entitled to. Instead of that clause in the subcontract being evidence that Mr. Dorsey was endeavoring to swindle the government, the evidence is exactly the other way. It was put there for the purpose of protecting the subcontractor, so that if expedition was put upon the route, the government would know what percent of the expedition to pay to the subcontractor. If that clause had not been in that contract, the government could not have told how much money to pay the subcontractor, and as a consequence the subcontract would have been worthless as security for the subcontract. And yet a clause put in for the protection of the subcontractor is referred to in your presence as evidence that the man who suggested it was a thief and a robber. What more? They say to these witnesses, did you ever see such a clause as that in the subcontract before? No. Well, why? The government never recognized a subcontractor before that time, and consequently there was no necessity for such a clause. Think how they must have endeavored to torture every circumstance, no matter how honest, no matter how innocent, no matter how sensible, how they endeavored to twist it and turn it against these defendants. Gentlemen, whenever you start out on the ground that a man is guilty, everything looks like it. If you hate a neighbor, and anything happens to your lot, you say he did it. If your horse is poisoned, he is the man who did it. If your fence is torn down, he is the fellow. You will go to work and get all the little circumstances that have nothing to do with the matter, braided and woven into one string. Everything will be accounted for as coming from that enemy, and as something he has done. They say another thing that we defrauded the government by filing subcontracts. You cannot do it. When this case is being closed, I want somebody to explain to the jury how it is possible for a man to defraud this government by filing a subcontract. I do not claim to have such ingenuity. I claim that I have not enough to decide that question or to answer it. I can lay down the proposition that it is an absolute, infinite, eternal impossibility to fraudulently file a subcontract as against the government. It cannot be done. Oh, but they say, the subcontractor did not take the oath. There is no law that he should take an oath, and there never was. There may be at some time, but there is not now. The law that everybody engaged in carrying the mail and every salaried officer of the department shall take an oath was passed before the law of the 17th of May, 1879, allowing a subcontractor to file his subcontract. Before that time, the government had nothing to do with the subcontractor. If he actually carried the mail, 
if he actually took possession of the mail, he had to take an oath of the carrier. But I defy these gentlemen to find in the law any oath for a subcontractor. There never was such an oath. If there is one, find it. The law that every salaried officer and every carrier of the mail shall take the oath was passed years and years and years before the law was passed allowing subcontracts to be filed. What of it? Suppose a man who is a subcontractor carries the mail and does not take any oath. That is as good as to take the oath and not carry the mail. What possible evidence is it of fraud? Suppose it should turn out that the carrier did not take the oath, but carried the mail honestly? What of it? Is it any evidence of fraud? If a man tells the truth without being sworn, is that evidence that he is a dishonest man? If a man carries the mail properly and in accordance with the law without being sworn to do so, it seems to me that it is evidence that he is an honest fellow, and you don't need to swear him. So when a subcontractor takes a subcontract and carries the mail according to the law, it does not make any difference whether he swears to do so or not. Is there any evidence in this case that the subcontractors stole any letters on account of not having taken the oath? When they answer, let them point to the law that the subcontractor is to take an oath. There is no such law, and never was. Now, according to this admission of Mr. Kerr, the conspiracy commenced after they got the contract. Very well. I need not talk about anything back of that. I do not know whether the admission is binding upon the government or not. I believe the court holds that the government is not bound by the admission of any agent, and that the government only authorizes an agent to admit facts. Maybe he is mistaken. The government only authorizes an agent to admit the law. At any rate, Mr. Kerr did the very best he knew how, and he says this conspiracy commenced when they got the contracts. And so we need not go back of that unless the government is now willing to say that Mr. Kerr has made a mistake. I lay down the proposition, gentlemen, that you need not go back of the division of these roots. Then you must go forward. What was done after that? Recollect the exact position of Senator Dorsey and the exact position of these other people. This ends Chapter 4, Part 2 of 24.